So in summary, we have the finalised version of the PCG and the tax ruling now. We've had two further court cases. We are getting a bit closer to some sort of clarity on a few things, but there are still a couple of things that are sort of up in the air and may stay up in the air for a long time. Thankfully, there is a few more examples where things are accepted as green zone, but there's still a lot that is in the is in the ether. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to update 33 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this update. Now, originally we had two more episodes to go about child support payments, about non-agency payments and lump sum payments. And those two episodes are still coming. We just interrupt our usual flow of episodes for two updates about Section 100A today and next week, Section 100A, ITAA 1936. As you know, the ATO has done a lot of work around Section 100A. We did three episodes about that last year in episode 345, the Guardian case. Then in episode 346, we discussed the blue zone arrangements listed in the draft taxation ruling. And then in episode 347, we did a Section 100A Q&A. Back then, the taxation ruling PCG was still in draft. They were TR 2022-D1 and the PCG was also Dash D1. And these two have now been finalized and they are now TR 2022-4 and PCG 2022-2. So now you have three finalized rulings around Section 108. The taxpayer alert was always in finalized version. That was never a draft. Taxpayer alerts are never really in draft. And then you also have the finalized PCG and TR. So That's all fine. So why the urgency? Why interrupting our mini-series about child support with two updates? And let me a little bit elaborate on this answer. As you know, Section 100A usually comes in when somebody is made presently entitled to trust income but then doesn't see the income, i.e. never actually gets a dime and instead the money goes to somebody else. And as you know, one way to solve such a Section 100A issue is to pay out the present entitlement to the declared beneficiary. So let the money follow the present entitlement. And as you also know, of course, this is very obvious, the distribution of trust income, i.e. the trustee resolution regarding the distribution of trust income, needs to happen before 30th of June. If it doesn't happen, then of course we have a big problem because then the income either goes to the default beneficiary Or if there isn't one, then to the trustee and then you look at top marginal rates plus Medicare if it is an individual trustee. But I digress. You know all this. So you need to address all this before 30th of June. The trust distribution as well, ideally the payout of the trust distribution, the money. And that's why this is urgent. That's why we squeezed it in as an update so that it goes out now in well before the 30th of June, so that you hopefully still have enough time to fix any Section 100A issues looming on the horizon by making sure they get paid out to the beneficiary that is actually listed in the trust distribution. Now, before we cut across to Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne, let me touch on five things around Section 100A to rejig your memory. So this is nothing new. Just to rejig your memory, a comment about amendment periods, 
listing the three criteria for Section 108 to apply, because if you if Section 108 doesn't apply, then you don't need to worry about any of this, then this is actually not a change of law. There is no actual change of law. Then I would like to just briefly touch on Taxpayer Alert 2022-1, because we seem to be focusing on the PCG and the TR. And then number five, the legal status of TAs, PCGs and TRs, because the question is, you know, to what extent can you actually rely on a TA or a PCG or a TR? So these are the five points I would love to quickly go through with you. If you are already well versed in Section 108, then please skip this and come back in 10 minutes. And then, you know, we will start the interview with Andrew Henshaw. So here is point number one. Point number one, amendment period. How far back can the ATO go with Section 100A issues? And the answer is indefinitely. Section 100A has no amendment period because the beneficiary is deemed to never have been actually presently entitled. They were never meant to actually get the trust income paid out to them. The so-called resolution was just a shame to use their lowered marginal tax rates. And so there is no amendment period for Section 100A regarding the official beneficiary. Instead, the trustee is assessed under Section 99A. What I'm not sure about is whether Section 99A has an amendment period. So, of course, usually trustees don't lodge a return anyway and hence don't start the amendment period anyway. But if, just in theory, the trustee had lodged a return would there be an amendment period for the income the trustee is assessed on via Section 99A? I'm not sure, but let's just leave it standing in the room for now like this. In summary, Section 100A has no amendment period and the trustee most likely won't be protected through an amendment period either when being assessed via Section 99A, but I'm not 100% sure on this point. Point number two, three criteria for Section 100A to apply. For Section 100A to apply, you need to meet three requirements. Connection, benefit to another and purpose. Number one, connection. You must have a present entitlement connected to an agreement not to actually pay out this entitlement. So you have a trust distribution without the intention of ever actually paying the official beneficiary. Number two, benefit for another. Instead of the official beneficiary, somebody else gets paid, either in cash or through the transfer of property or services. Somebody who is not the official beneficiary. Point number three, tax reduction purpose. And the intention with all this must be to reduce tax. If you have these three elements, then you have a Section 100A reimbursement agreement. But there is one exception. Exception? There is one big exception for Section 100A not to apply, the ordinary course exception. If the agreement is entered into in the course of, and now I quote, ordinary family or commercial dealings, end of quote, then Section 100A does not apply. And of course, that is a very gray area. What exactly means ordinary family or commercial dealings? So TR 2022-4 spends a lot of time on this definition of ordinary family or commercial dealings. And the PCG, of course, does as well. Point number three, no change of actual law. 
So this is Section 100A as it stands, and that hasn't changed. There is no change of actual law. The legislator hasn't actually done anything. It's just the ATO doing something. It's just the ATO saying, this is going to be our focus. Be warned. This is what we are looking for. This is how we plan to audit this. So the taxpayer alert, practical compliance guideline and taxation ruling are all just laying the ground for the ATO to attack these sham trust distributions. But the law itself hasn't changed. And when I say sham distributions, I don't actually mean sham distributions. I just mean, you know, distributions that are stretching the rules a little bit. The ATO calls that reimbursement agreements, but I find sham distributions are more to the point. But, you know, let's call them reimbursement agreements if you prefer. Point number four, taxpayer alert, TA 2022-1. Putting everything aside, especially the complicated arrangements we discuss next week, the ATO basically tells you in its taxpayer alert in TA 2022-1, they tell you what they're focusing on, where they see the biggest issue. And you don't even need to read the taxpayer alert itself. The title already tells you. Parents benefiting from the trust entitlements of their children over 18 years of age. So their children and over 18 years of age, because of course, when they are under 18 years of age, then penalty rates apply. So very few trust distributions actually go to children under 18 years of age, unless of course it's a testamentary trust or a child maintenance trust or a disability trust. So the music is in trust entitlements to the children who are 18 years of age. So we are talking college kids receiving trust distributions and never seeing a dime. That is a big chunk of what this is about, because that is where the ATO loses a lot of its tax revenue around Section 100A. Point number five, legal status of TAs, PCGs and TRs. We're talking a lot about TA, PCG and TRs in this episode. So let me just quickly reject your memory about the legal status of TAs, PCGs and TRs. How much can you rely on either? Number one. Taxpayer alert. A taxpayer alert is the ATO's early response, often before the extent of the risk is fully known. It's like hearing the siren of the fire engine far away on its way to a bushfire. They don't know yet what exactly is happening. They don't know what they're going to do. The ATO is just telling you they're coming. It is like them saying there's smoke on the horizon. It looks like a bushfire, but we don't know yet where it is, what caused it, how big it is and which direction it is traveling. But there is definitely smoke on the horizon. That is what the ATO is saying in a TA. So TA 2022-1 doesn't provide advice or guidance. It just tells you that the ATO can see a lot of smoke coming out of trust distributions. Number two, practical compliance guidelines. PCGs are two things not. They are not an interpretation of the law itself. PCG 2022-2 doesn't say Section 100A means this or that. And they are not a public ruling either. You can't rely on a PCG the way you can rely on a public or private ruling. So what is a PCG then? A PCG tells you how the ATO assesses the risk and how they plan to allocate their audit teams according to this assessment of risk. Which scenarios will pick their interest to dig deeper? Which setups are they likely to fight? It's like a fire department saying, okay, 
If we have one hectare burning with no wind, we send one truck out. If it is 100 hectares with strong wind, we declare a state of emergency. It's probably not how a fire department assesses risk at all, but you get, hopefully you get what I mean. Or maybe better if you go to the beach and you surf lifesavers instead. PCGs are like putting two flag posts into the sand so you can choose to swim between the flags. If you do, it doesn't give you 100% certainty that you won't get caught in a rift. It doesn't mean you will never ever get audited, but the risk is pretty low if you stay between the flags. And if you venture away from the flags, at least you know how far away you are and you know when you are crossing the line where it gets more risky. Number three, taxation rulings. In a TR, the ATO, well, it's not actually the ATO, but the Commission of Taxation, but let's say the ATO. In a TR, the ATO puts the bounty on the table. This is where they say, this is how we think the law should apply. It is a technical ruling. In a TR, the ATO makes its biggest commitment and hence it gives you the greatest protection. If you rely on a taxation ruling with reason and in good faith, you're safe from interest and penalties if there is an issue. You still have to pay the tax, but at least no interest or penalties. So this is the legal status of TA, PCGs and TRs. In a TA, the ATO says, we can see smoke. In a PCG, the ATO says, here are the flag posts in the sand, swim between the flags. And in a TR, the ATO says, this is what we think causes a fire, outlining how the ATO interprets the law. Just so you know, when Andrew talks about PCGs and TRs, that you know how much you can actually rely on either. So here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne about the final versions of PCG 2022-2 and TR 2022-4, which were still in draft when we spoke about them last year, but which have now been finalized. Coming to section 100A and the update, I have three questions for you and I assume that at least two of those questions are also you want to cover. The first one is, when we last spoke, two of the three rulings about section 100A were still in draft, you know, TR 2022-D1 and PCG 2022-D1, they were in draft. I assume they have been finalized now, but that's my first question. Have they been finalized? The second question is, are there any changes? from the drafts we discussed. And then the third question is really not so much a question, but more of a comment. And I will share that with you later. But it's basically a comment about how you still can use trust quite safely to save tax, including, you know, involving college kids without running into Section 100A. But I hold that back for, for later. I should first hand over to you now. So what has changed with respect to Section 100A? The main developments since we, we, we spoke on this topic are that the ATO has now finalised their ruling and their uh, practical compliance guide. And there's also been a couple of case law updates as, as two cases have worked their way through the courts. So there's quite a bit of change. In December 2022, the ATO released TR 2022-4, so that's the ruling, and they have the PCG, which is 2022-2, lots of twos. So those two documents were released, and there were also explanatory compendiums to those rulings and 
to the ruling and the PCG. And what the compendium's role is, is to address concerns, queries, statements, etc., from the tax professional community about interpretations. And the interesting thing here is that the compendiums are actually longer than the rulings and the PCGs themselves. They are very, very detailed because of the very long feedback process, I'll call it, that was that sort of occurred after those drafts were released. So what are the changes? Some of the changes are because of a case called B Blood, which came out during 2022. And some of the changes are are related to the Guardian case. And B Blood, you spell as B double E and then blood? No, just B B and then just the letter B and then blood. Okay. So that was another Section 100A case that's going through the courts at the moment. Main changes we have is A, we have the explanatory memorandum that we didn't have last time we spoke. And then we have those two court cases, correct? Because I assume the actual wording of, of the TR and the PCG hasn't changed, correct? Well, no, actually quite a bit of the wording has changed. Sometimes you'll have situations where you have a draft and then the final will be very close to the draft. There's definitely large chunks of the ruling and PCG that are the same or substantially the same as the draft, but there are sections that are, are quite different. I'll put them in two categories. One is about expression and wording and acknowledgement of things. And the other is through some of the actual examples that are used. So it's not really possible to go through all of them in minutiae detail, but I'll cover off on some of the changes. So starting with the ruling, I guess what the ruling tried to do is it's a bit difficult because it's such a complicated area, but try to actually set out succinctly what is actually required, basically, and to set those, those elements out pretty quickly up front. And to make it clear that if you don't provide a benefit to another person, then Section 100A is not going to do anything. It's not going to apply. They acknowledge that, which actually wasn't in the draft documentation. Yes, but with trust distributions, you always provide a benefit to another person. Well, other than the beneficiary. In other words, if the trust, all the trust is doing is making a beneficiary presently entitled and actually paying that person the money, then there is no problem. Might sound obvious, but it's spelled out now in the ruling. Some of the other points that are drawn out is the discussion regarding what an ordinary family or commercial dealing is is expanded a little bit. And it's made clear, or at least somewhat made clear, that an agreement requires two parties to it, which wasn't actually in the previous the previous draft. So so in other words, it, in order to have a, a reimbursement agreement, it can't just be the trustee on their own. It needs to be there needs to be some other person that's party to the arrangement. That means the college kid has to sign the document. Well, it's not necessarily that the document needs to be signed because it, an agreement can be implied or uh, oral, but, but yeah, they need to know something about it. And what I think the ATO, I think they were going to have problems with this, but I think they're probably going to run a lot of implied or inferred arrangement kind of arguments. Yeah, I can imagine that's very much the case. You know, the children just go to college, happy, marry. The money is at least 
there and the parents are doing something in the background and the children actually have no idea that they are part of a reimbursement agreement or something else. Yeah, yeah. I think the commissioner would say if that's done year on year, then you sort of, it's inferred or almost implied that there is an agreement for each, maybe not for the first one, maybe not even for the second, but I guess if it goes on long enough, they might imply that, well, you knew about the last one, so you knew about this one, but it's a challenging argument to make. Yeah, because that actually protects the taxpayer. Correct. If they are basically saying, yeah, if the parents have been doing that for four or five years, then, you know, you can assume the college could knew about it. That protects the taxpayer because then we can basically assume that there is a proper agreement between two parties. No, sorry. No, but having an agreement is one of the, if you don't have an agreement that you can't have Section 100A applying. So what this is saying is that in order for Section 100A to apply, you need to have an agreement and an agreement requires two parties. So in other words, if the trustee unilaterally does an action, there is no agreement because there is not two parties. There is just the trustee. So agreement is actually bad. You don't want an agreement. Yes, you don't want it. Because the moment you have an agreement, you have Section 100A because then clearly something is going on. Yeah, if you meet all the other conditions, yes. But but if you don't have an agreement, then you can't have a reimbursement agreement. You can't have a Section 100A issue. What I find really interesting, the most interesting part of the ruling that's, that's updated is, is regarding cultural factors. Uh, and I think this is probably the most controversial area of the ruling. So this is in the context of whether or not a dealing is an ordinary family or commercial dealing. Sorry, an ordinary commercial or family dealing. So you can have an agreement. The purpose could be to reduce tax. All the other requirements are met. But if what you're doing is an ordinary family or commercial dealing, then it, then it's excluded. And... The hard thing is about, well, what does that actually mean? And the ruling tries to give an explanation of, of what that is. And in essence, it's about, well, you have to look at the dealing and try to make sense of it, but for tax, essentially. You sort of like ignore tax and you sort of look at, does this achieve an objective of the family? So, okay, what, are, what if that leads to the next question? What is, what are family objectives. And if you follow this rabbit hole, you sort of got to look at what's done and work out, okay, what objective is that achieving other than tax, of course. In doing that, that's sort of an objective test. But what the ATO say, uh, it's around paragraph 109 of the ruling, is that cultural factors inform the question whether a dealing achieves family or commercial objectives. So even though it's an objective test, you apply section 100A, you work out whether a dealing is ordinary, an ordinary family or commercial dealing. In the ATO's view of this, in a ruling, you need to work out what objectives are being achieved. And to work out what objectives are being achieved, you can look at cultural factors. What? Cultural factors? Yeah, 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 cultural factors. So That sounds incredibly dangerous. It sounds like a really massive part for A that is even more fabulous than normal part for A. Yeah, well, it's, it's just a, I think it's just a really slippery slope because 
to me, and they give some, I'll go through the examples and I'll give my thoughts. So for example, they give an example of person who's a member of a family and that the, the family member's cultural values include grandparents giving money or goods to younger members of the family during the festive season. And that is relevant in considering whether or not gifts from grandparents to grandchildren out of a trust distribution is in the ordinary course of a family or commercial dealing. So that to me is really, really problematic because there are so many different cultures. Uh, that, that general description could apply to various different cultural practices at various different times. But it really gets into a dangerous territory of, I mean, it really requires you to make an assessment of what someone's cultural values are. And it's sort of, okay, it, it's sort of applying law, the law differently to different people, basically, based on their... It very quickly can result in discrimination of certain groups or ethnicities in, in Australia. So the rule basically coming out of that is... If you're Christian, don't make a distribution from the trust over Christmas to your children. If you're Jewish, don't pay it on Hanukkah. If you're a Muslim, don't pay it during Ramadan. If you're Chinese, don't pay it during Chinese New Year. Basically avoid these time markers that have a symbolic role in your in your culture, correct? Yeah, but I think it's the opposite. I think that those that the ACO say that these things are helpful. So these things can be an explanation of why something is ordinary. So in other words, If grandparents, if they're Chinese and grandparents give a red packet to their grandchildren during Chinese New Year and it's sourced from trust distributions, it's not a reimbursement agreement. It seems crazy to be even be talking about it, but... Um, Good. So that means basically try to hit those time markers then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's almost that. And it's, uh, uh, I, I guess, uh, being slightly facetious, it's be a member of every single culture as well. <laughs> if you can claim multiple festive seasons, then, um, you know, you can, I don't know, maybe you can have the benefit of those. Yeah, but it also doesn't matter. You really do just need one during the year I mean, because it doesn't say how big it is. It doesn't say, oh, every festive season can only be 20,000 or 50,000. You can make it as big as it needs to be in that year for that one event. So you really just need one. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they do hedge their bets a little bit in the ruling as well because they, they, give, they give an example of, a trust that distributes income to a non-resident who for religious reasons will not accept the entitlement. They do say that while that person's beliefs are a cultural factor that explains why the entitlement won't be called for, they don't necessarily explain why the distribution is made in the first place. So this is someone's running the argument, I'm going to distribute to a non-resident and I'm not going to pay it because their cultural practice is not to accept It gifts. <laughs> so the ATO is saying, no, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it. So it seems to be a bit of a value judgment and it seems just to be a dangerous territory to get into, ratifying whether someone's cultural practice is acceptable or not or exists or does not. It just seems to be a very dangerous territory to, to get into for laws that are supposed to apply to everyone on the same basis. But basically uh, focusing on this family objective, Doesn't it then also mean that it's it's basically similar to part 4A that you basically step you step back and you have a look at the whole arrangement and you ask who's actually benefiting from this? Essentially, yeah, they're trying to import a bit of that into here. Good. So, are these the main changes in wording in those two documents? Now, before Andrew answers this question, 
Here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Oh, it's coming. That time of year where stress levels go up by 15 to 20%. Yep, tax time. And when stress is up, mistakes happen. But I'm not here to talk about my screw-ups. Because this year, I've gone digital with DocuSign. Now there's no snail mail paperwork, invoices are getting done faster. So when it comes to tax time, I can just be an accountant and not some paper chaser. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Good. So are these the main changes in wording in those two documents? Well, that's the main one in the ruling, but the PCG is probably the ones that have a bit more relevance to the to the here and now and the practical. So in the PCG, previously, things were categorized by four zones, the white zone, a green zone, a blue zone, and a red zone. And there's a lot of criticism of this blue zone because it was it was just like, like, what is this? Like, it doesn't, not a traffic light system. Yeah, we didn't like the color. We wanted it orange. Did they make it orange? Well, they didn't make it orange. They just got rid of it entirely, which is probably a better decision because it still really wasn't clear what the consequences of being in that territory were. So now we just have three. So now we just have white, green and red, correct? Yes, correct. Um, and green means 100% okay? White means neutral? No, wh white and green both mean mean okay. White refers to some historical things prior to 1 July 2014. Green is is your is your green zone and red is we may look at you. So not everything and lots of things, probably most things, maybe not most things, but lots of things, won't, will not actually fall into one of those zones. So it's not trying to cover the field. There's just, there's these three categories and if you fit into one of those, here's what you might expect, but you may not fit into any of these. So the red zone, it's not that different to, to previously uh, what we talked about. There's the, the washing machine arrangements and the pay, the adult children paying back the parents for the school fees from when they were a minor and gifts to non or distributions to non-residents that come back to, to Australians. That's all still there. What that is is a little bit more in the green zone about things that are low risk. And I think the biggest one is there's there's basically a two-year rule now, which says that if you make someone presently entitled and you pay the entitlement within two years, then you're in the green zone. It's subject to not not having any risky factors, but that's that's essentially what the what the scenario is. So I think some people will take comfort from this that okay, so long as I pay my present entitlement, within two years, I'm going to be low risk. Okay. That makes it a lot easier. Just make sure you pay it out and all is well. Yeah. If you pay it out within two years, all is sort of well. It's interesting where the two years came up or came from. It's sort of a very similar time frame to Division 7A. I don't think there's any rhyme or reason for that two years. I guess it takes a little while for accounts to be prepared and then we'll give a bit of leeway on top of that. And it is still subject to a number of exclusions. So, for example, it doesn't cover situations where the payment is made by way of set-off. So, for example, if it's a present entitlement to a company 
and then the company declares a dividend back to the the trust, for example, to set off the payment, doesn't cover that. And it doesn't cover basically anything with non-residents. And it doesn't cover mismatches where you've got mismatches between trust law income and ordinary income, sorry, taxable income. It doesn't cover where a beneficiary just disclaims their interest or forgives or releases it. So it is quite narrow still. So it's, it's, it's only going to cover your pretty vanilla situations where some, you make someone president entitled and you pay it within two years. And there's no funny business going on, we'll call it. But it's, it's something. Yes, it is something. But I think even with that, you can still create funny business. Ensure Velocity Legal in Melbourne. So if you have clients with trust distributions that don't get timely paid out to beneficiaries, please read PCG 2022-2 and TR 2022-4. It is quite informative. Now, let me read you just one example from the taxation ruling TR 2022-4, example 9, because it covers a very common scenario and it really surprised me what this example says. I have shortened some bits and rewritten some parts to make it easier. So it's not a 100% quote, but the content and the structure and most of it is exactly the same. Example 9, paragraph 145 to 147 of TR 2022-4. From time to time, the trustee of the Davidson Family Trust makes John Davidson, the son who is a full-time student with no other income, presently entitled to a share of trust income. John's entitlement is usually $20,000 per year, so he doesn't pay any tax. John has indicated to the trustee, a.k. his dad, that he will not call for the payment until he purchases a home or makes a similar investment in a few years. Nonetheless, John is at liberty to enforce his rights as beneficiaries to recover those amounts at any time. John's tax-free threshold reduces the overall tax on the trust net income. However, in the absence of additional factors, the arrangement that involves John simply delaying the payment of his original trust entitlement would likely be entered into in the course of ordinary dealings. So, end of quote, the ATO is saying that this is okay Yes, John's entitlements don't get paid out, they get reinvested in the trust, but that is okay as long as they can get paid out at any time and as long as John you know, will get them eventually. Let me just quickly continue this paragraph 147 now. So I start quoting again. A different outcome might arise if, for example, the trustee loans the funds on interest-free terms for an undefined period to another person or otherwise applies the trust funds in a way that is inconsistent with an intention that John would ultimately receive the amount of his entitlements. End of quote. So that means if John doesn't get his entitlements paid out and then instead the entitlements get paid out to his dad on interest-free terms, there's no loan agreement, etc., then this would be Section 100A. But if they don't get paid out but reinvested in the trust, or if they do get paid out, but with a loan agreement that also has a market rate interest rate, then it is still okay. Another issue is if the funds in the trust get reinvested, 
but they get reinvested into an illiquid asset. So, for example, the trust buys a commercial property, for example, and so that means there is no liquidity to pay John's entitlements out when he calls on them. So then you also probably have a Section 100A issue, but as long as the cash is just sitting there waiting for John to call on it, or as long as the cash gets invested in shares that can easily get turned back into cash within a few days of settlement, as long that's the case, that's okay. So I thought that was very interesting. So you don't necessarily have to pay out all trust entitlements immediately before 30th of June, as long as they are ready to be paid out and they stay within the trust, it's okay. So that was example nine in TR 2022-4. Very interesting. And it shows it is not as black and white as it might seem when it comes to payments. Now, before you go, let me just very quickly play you something I asked Andrew Henshaw before the start of the interview. It is about transfer trust. If you're already well versed with transfer trust, then please call it a day. But if you're not familiar with transfer trust, then please have a listen to this. Do you mind if I just very quickly hijack you and ask you something else? Could you give me a very short five minute or 30 second explanation of what a transfer trust is? I know it's complicated, but I haven't really grasped yet how a transfer trust is different to a foreign trust. A transfer trust is, it's a foreign trust. A transfer trust is a foreign trust. It's not different to a foreign trust. It's a subset of foreign trusts, basically. So a trust is either a resident trust or not. And if it's not, it's a foreign trust. And of that class, some of those foreign trusts will be treated as transfer trusts. Okay. And what roughly needs to happen for a trust to be a transfer trust? Does it mean it needs to receive assets from Australia? No. So what it means is it needs to, well, in, in some way, yes, it needs to, it needs to have Australian residents contribute property or services to the trust. Okay. So regardless of whether that sets law or not, if I, if I say I made an interest-free loan to a foreign trust, for example, as an Australian resident, then that that foreign trust may be treated as a transfer or trust. Okay. So transfer trusts come into the play when you have assets or services or loans moving out of Australia into another tax jurisdiction. Yeah, because if you think about it this way, if there were nothing if there were no transfer raw trust rules, then well, when the money when and if the money comes back to Australia, it would be taxed under Section 99B. But until that day happens, and that day may never happen, you would effectively be able to accumulate that wealth offshore without Australian tax. So it's basically trying to cover the situation. Instead of a CFC, you're using a trust to park income overseas. Yeah. And of course... You know, you don't have shares and things like that, which makes it a bit easier with not that the controlled foreign company rules are easy, but it makes it easier to trace, whereas a, a trust is a bit more difficult. So this was Andrew Henshaw about transfer trusts. And so today we covered PCG 2022-2 and TR 2022-4. Next week, we will cover two court cases, V-Blood and the Guardian case. We have spoken about the Guardian case before. Now the Guardian case has been decided by the full federal court. So Andrew Henshaw, Velocity Legal in Melbourne, will discuss this with you. 
Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next update.